Our first reading comes from Acts chapter 4, verses 23 to 37. On their release, Peter and John went back to their own people and reported all that the chief priests and the elders had said to them. When they heard this, they raised their voices together in prayer to God. Sovereign Lord, they said, you make the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them. You spoke by the Holy Spirit through the mouth of your servant, our father David. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers gather together against the Lord and against his anointed one. Indeed, Herod and Pontius Pilate met together with the Gentiles and the people of Israel in this city to conspire against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed. They did what your power and will had decided before should happen. Now, Lord, consider their threats and and enable your servants to speak your word with great boldness. Stretch out your hand to heal and perform miraculous signs and wonders through the name of your holy servant Jesus. After they prayed, the place where they the place where they were meeting was shaken, and they were filled. They were all filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke the word of God boldly. All the believers were one in heart and mind. No one claimed that any of his possessions was his own, but they shared everything they had. With great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and much grace was upon them all. There were no needy persons among them, for from time to time those who owned lands or houses sold them, brought the money from the sales and put it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to anyone as he was had need. Joseph, a Levite from Cyprus, whom the apostles called Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, sold a field he owned and brought the money and put it at the apostles' feet. Second reading this evening is from the Gospel of John, chapter 20, verses 19 to 31. On the evening of that first day of the week, when the disciples were together with the doors locked for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. After he said this, he showed them his hands and side. The disciples were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. Again Jesus said, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I am sending you. And with that, he breathed on them and said, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive anyone his sins... They are forgiven. If you do not forgive them, they are not forgiven. Now Thomas, called Didymus, one of the twelve, was not with the disciples when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see the nail marks in his hands, and put my finger where the nails were, and put my hand into his side, I will not believe it. A week later, his disciples were in the house again, and Thomas was with them. Though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here. See my hands. Reach out your hand and put it into my side. Stop doubting and believe. Thomas said to him, 
my Lord and my God. Then Jesus told him, because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Jesus did many other miraculous signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. I saw a cartoon by a guy called Joshua Harris that had three disciples stood together with Thomas being one of them. And Thomas said, All I'm saying is that we don't call Peter denying Peter or Mark runaway naked Mark. Why should I be saddled with this title? And he has a point. Thomas is known as a doubter. Throughout history, he's referred to as Doubting Thomas. And I want us to begin by considering whether that is a fair title or not. Now, first of all, imagine yourself in his shoes. People don't rise from the dead. So it's unreasonable to expect someone to just believe that. The implications, if it were true, were so incredibly significant that we can't really blame him for wanting evidence. He simply made a reasonable statement in an unreasonable and once-in-a-lifetime resurrection situation. So what exactly was it that he said that gives him this title of Doubting Thomas? Well, he said, unless I see the scars, etc., I will not believe. And it's that word, unless, that we seem to have a problem with. But Thomas is being honest about what he needed to believe, this unbelievable thing that had happened. And because of that, we label him as a doubter. I wonder if we do that, because if one of the disciples doubts, then it's okay for us to doubt too. But that statement from Thomas might surprise us nonetheless. Throughout Jesus' ministry, Thomas had been there. He'd seen all of the stuff that Jesus did. He'd seen the miracles. He'd seen all of that stuff firsthand. And Jesus had told him what was to come. He was there through all of it. And yet all of that was pushed to one side with the demands that he makes. He asks to see the nails, uh, the nail marks. He asks to put his finger in and put his hand in his side. Even though on the basis of his own experience, he knew that Jesus was in the habit of doing things that people didn't expect. He knew that Jesus was in the habit of performing miracles, but he still found it hard to believe this one. And to be fair, imagine you'd been away for a week and you came back to church and we were telling you that somebody amazing and famous had been to visit us that week unexpectedly. You'd probably want evidence, you'd probably need a few people to verify that to make sure you believed it. And see, Thomas wasn't there He didn't get to see what the other disciples had seen. He never got to see the scars on his body first time. He never got to see that Jesus really was alive and risen from the dead. And we don't even know why he wasn't there. It could be that he was the kind of person who chose to deal with his grief alone. Perhaps he was so upset that being on his own was the best thing. 
He went off alone while the others met together. He could have popped out for something, for all we know. But whatever the reason, the news that Jesus had risen from the grave was unsurprisingly unrealistic to him. It was wishful thinking. He refused initially to believe it. He couldn't quite believe what the other disciples had told him. And after making this demand about what he does need to believe in, need in order to believe, Jesus appeared to him. He was behind locked doors when Jesus appeared and invited him to see his hands, to put his finger on the nail marks and to put his hand in his side. Jesus mirrored the request of Thomas, which made it all the clearer that this was Jesus. He knew what Thomas needed to believe, even though he'd not physically been there when he'd said it. The risen Christ met Thomas on his terms, and Thomas no longer doubted. But there was a, another aspect to what, the, uh, what Jesus said to the disciples that I want to consider Just for a moment, think how it must have been for all those disciples in the room that day. The last thing they did before Jesus was arrested was to flee and to deny knowing him, despite the fact that they'd each said they'd be willing to die for him. But they were clearly not willing to do that. They were hiding and they were terrified. They knew that Jesus had died. They knew that the body had gone from the tomb And they didn't quite know what that meant. We don't know if they really believed what Mary had told them. They would have been confused, to say the least. And it's in that context that Jesus appeared to them. So what's the first thing that he said? He didn't say, where were you or you abandoned me. But amazingly, he just said, peace be with you. And then we're told one of the biggest understatements ever, I reckon, that they were glad when they saw the Lord. Of course they were glad. They saw Jesus raised from the dead. They were rejoicing, probably partly, mainly because they'd seen Jesus alive again, but imagine the relief. Because Jesus saying, peace be with you, is kind of like saying, I forgive you, it's all right, we're at peace here. I'm not holding those things against you which of course Jesus wouldn't do, but in our human state we probably might. And then he gives them this commission. As the Father has sent me, so I send you. And it's that commission that I want us to focus on. But to do that, just let me digress slightly. When Jesus said, put your finger here and see my hands, reach out and put your hand in my side, we don't know if Thomas took him up on that or not. We don't know if he reached out to touch Jesus. But whether he did or not, there's a lot of emphasis put on the proof of those scars. But why is that? Why is it so important that his wounds are visible to those who were there that day? Well, the obvious answer to that question is so that people would be sure that it was him. No one else would have those scars. No one else who'd been through what Jesus had suffered, would be able to be stand, standing there in front of them ever again. As far as proving that it was really him goes, then the scars made all the difference. Some people throughout the years have said that Christ didn't really suffer any pain or didn't really die, he just appeared to. 
They say that Jesus only appeared to be human, but that actually he wasn't. We, however, insist that Jesus was fully human. The risen Christ would bear the scars of being human. Only a wounded saviour can really speak to a wounded people. Jesus experienced along with us what it was like to be human. He wasn't above the suffering that is part of the human condition. So it's important that we know that he had scars. It's important that we know that it was really him. He really did die and rise to life again. But there's another reason for that emphasis too, I reckon. And it's about the commission that he gave to those disciples. Jesus said, as the Father has sent me, so I send you. He's saying, I'm sending you in the same way that God sent me, which is as humans, with scars. Humans with all our frailties and our uh, pain and our suffering. That's the way he sent the disciples and that's the way he sends us. Jesus is spreading the good news of forgiveness and hope through scarred humans. It's wounded, it is the wounded Christ that reaches out to us in our own woundedness. Jesus sent the disciples out as someone who shared their pain, who'd experienced their hurting and suffering. And we're told that it was after eight days that Christ appeared to Thomas. The eighth day was significant in those times. The eighth day is the fulfilment of priestly ordination, the day for the dedication of the firstborn, a day to mark in circumcision the covenant relationship, a day of gratitude and a day of offering. So I wonder if there's something significant about this happening on the eighth day. And it being the eighth day that Thomas declared, my Lord and my God. And after which he was sent out for service along with the others. And it's that being sent out part that we often miss when we think about doubting Thomas, or perhaps I should just call him Thomas. We only see part of the picture if we end at his questioning and then his declaration of faith. We miss so much when we leave it once we know that Thomas now believes. He went on from there to spread the gospel into many, many places. You see, Easter gives us a new hope, a new hope for the future and for now. It's about living in a broken and imperfect world, but in a new way. Thomas went on to spread the good news of Jesus as he'd been commanded to do. So when Jesus said, I, am, I send you, he said it to a group of scared men who were hiding in a locked room. They didn't probably really understand what had just happened to Jesus. And it was in that state that he said, I'm sending you. They didn't have to come to terms with everything that had just happened. They didn't have to pass some sort of test. They didn't even have to pull themselves together and for, to be checked that they were okay before they could be sent out. They were ready as they were. And then we're told that Jesus breathes on them. That's a little bit strange at first. But in the Bible, breathing on something was what God did to bring it life. When he created Adam, he breathed into him and he brought him to life with his breath. God gives life through his breath. And in that sense, the disciples in that locked room were dead and lifeless. 
They were dead in their denial of Jesus. They were dead in their sins and the way they disowned him and the way they let him down. But Jesus breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. Jesus, who until that point had been dead, breathed life, the Holy Spirit, into weak disciples. And then in receiving that power, the disciples were then commissioned to go out and do the same. Jesus knew what the disciples needed, that they needed to hear and see and touch. And then he sent them out and he does the same to us. Jesus comes to us in our fearful, dead, inadequate, failing state and says, peace be with you. So, and as the Father has sent me, so I send you. The disciples received power through the Holy Spirit to spread the good news of Jesus and to work for the kingdom of God. And you know, the great Easter truth is not that we're going to live newly after death, but that we are to be new here and now by the power of the resurrection. As Christians, we're all about Easter and what difference that makes to us. But as we've probably eaten all our chocolate eggs and as the lilies have faded and wilted, it's very easy to make Easter Sunday a day to remember rather than a truth to be lived. And actually, those first Christians who had direct experience of the risen Lord don't seem to have it much better than we did or do. There were various people who didn't do it all well after the resurrection. The women at the tomb seemed to have forgotten that Jesus said that he'd rise to life after three days. It took the angels to remind them of that fact. And then when they ran back to tell the other disciples, they didn't believe them either. And as for Mary again in the garden, well, she thought that Jesus was a gardener. Their immediate responses weren't all that great as it happened. But when Jesus appeared to those disciples and breathed on them and gave them the power of the Holy Spirit, it was like fast forward to Pentecost, which is what we celebrate at the end of the Easter season. The Spirit-filled disciples were now filled with faith instead of fear, and they began to take up the ministry of Jesus on earth, to become the body of Christ here and now by the power of the resurrection. And Thomas, well, he goes down in history forever as doubting Thomas for his refusal to accept the testimony of others. But he actually demanded his own experience of the risen Lord. And I wonder if actually we're a little bit too quick to make him the poster boy for faithless doubt. Why don't we see his questioning as one of his great virtues? The fact that he's absolutely refused to say that he understood what he didn't understand. He wouldn't say that he believed something that he didn't believe. He had a refreshing honesty and would never still his doubts by pre pretending that they didn't exist. Thomas had doubts, but he refused to surrender to the fear which kept the disciples closed up in that locked room. He not only ventured out, but he had the courage to return again. And he insisted on his own experience of God. Thomas is often pointed as to as someone Christians uh, down the years can relate to. The second, third, and however many generations of Christians who inherit the stories of the risen Christ, but must at some point insist on their own experience of him. In that way, Thomas changes from being an example of faithlessness to one of courage. 
courage because he's trusting that there are no doubts so profound that God cannot answer them. To believe that Jesus cares enough to turn up again a second time, a third time, or however many times, to breathe the power of the Spirit into people's lives. We have the privilege and the responsibility of being the church in the world, of being Jesus on earth. We are the place where people should come to seek the risen Jesus, bringing their doubts and their questions along with them, and seeking that breath of new life that God offers and only he can give. It was only through asking the questions that Thomas got the answers. We need to offer the people the chance to ask tough questions. But we should also expect Jesus to show up and fill us with the power of his spirit. Because it's only when we're filled with the power of the spirit that we can be the witnesses that we're called to be. I heard of a christening that took place after, um, in which after the sprinkling of the baby, the vicar said, welcome this new Christian. And I'm not going to get into the theology of that right now. But <laughs> he said, and how is she going to learn to become a Christian? And holding her high in his arms to face the congregation, he said, by watching you. And so I wonder if it's actually possible that this incident with doubting Thomas is not so much about his disbelief, but about the failure of the other disciples to act out theirs. After all, why should Thomas believe what the other disciples were saying when they're still cowering behind a locked door? If they seen the risen Christ and received the Holy Spirit, then why didn't they act like it? And so the obvious question is this. When people come to us to seek Jesus, do they see us moving out into the world in the power of the Spirit, in spite of any doubts we might have? Or do they see us cowering behind locked doors for fear of the unknown? What would they learn about being a Christian by watching us? Easter Sunday has been and gone, but what difference does it make to us? Do we act as though we've met with the risen Jesus? Do we pass that excitement on to the people that we meet? Or do we hide ourselves away because of our fear? We need to remind ourselves, even if it's only a week after Easter Sunday, that because Jesus rose to life again, then that changes everything. Because of Jesus, we don't need to fear. We don't need to worry about what the future holds because we have a God who is greater than anything or anyone. Easter Sunday makes a difference to our future. The past is exactly that and all of the ways we've messed up don't affect us anymore because Jesus gives us a different future. And those things we, we regret, we can leave them with God. But when we dare to believe in the risen Jesus and the power of the Holy Spirit, that it's then that we can live the life that God intended for us. It's when we remember that Jesus said, peace be with you. And we remember the difference that Easter makes, that we can face the future with confidence. Easter is not about one day, but it's about a way of life and a different way of living. Because of Easter, we have some amazing good news to tell and an amazing invitation to offer people. Let's do that with confidence, knowing that we do so in the power of the Spirit, with nothing to fear but a life giving hope to offer to others and for ourselves.
God accepts us as we are, doubts and all. And God can use us as we are too. So let's close our service by singing, Just As I Am, Without One Plea.